14 through 39. Hear the word of God. The Lord again said to Moses in the desert of Sinai, Count all the families and family groups in the tribe of Levi. Count every man or boy who is one month old or older. So Moses obeyed the Lord. He counted them all. Levi had three sons. Their names were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Each son was the leader of several family groups. The Gershon family groups were Libni and Shemai. The Kohath family groups were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The Merari family groups were Mali and Mushi. These are the families that belong to Levi's family group. The families of Libni and Shemai belonged to the family of Gershon. There were Gershonite family groups. There were 7,500 men and boys over one month old in these two family groups. The Gershonite family groups were told to camp in the west. They made their camp behind the holy tent. The leader of the family groups of the Gershonites was Eliasaph, son of Lael. In the meeting tent, the Gershonites had the job of taking care of the holy tent, the outer tent, and the covering. They also took care of the curtain at the entrance of the meeting tent. They cared for the curtain in the courtyard. And they cared for the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. This courtyard was around the holy tent and the altar. And they cared for the ropes and for everything that was used with the curtains. The families of Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel belonged to the family of Kohath. They were the Kohathite family groups. In this family group, there were 8,300 men and boys a month old or over. The Kohathites were given the job of taking care of the things in the holy place. The Kohathite family groups were given the area to the south of the holy tent. This was the area where they camped. The leader of the Kohathite family groups were Elizaphan, son of Uziel. Their job was to take care of the holy box, the table, the lampstand, the altars, and the dishes of the holy place. They also cared for the curtain and all the things that were used with the curtain. The leader over the leaders of the Levites was Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest. Eleazar was in charge of everyone who took care of the holy things. The family groups of Mali and Mushi belonged to the Merari family. There were 6,200 men and boys who were one month old or older in the Mali family group. The leader of the Morari family group was Zeriel, son of Abihail. This family group was given the area to the north of the holy tent. This is the area where they camped. The people from the Morari family were given the job of caring for the frames of the holy tent. They cared for all the braces, posts, bases, and everything that was used with the frames of the holy tent. They also cared for all the posts in the courtyard around the holy tent. This included all the bases, tent pegs, and ropes. Moses, Aaron, and his sons camped east of the holy tent, in front of the meeting tent. They were given the work of caring for the holy place. They did this for all the Israelites. Anyone else who came near the holy place was to be killed. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to count all the men and boys one month old or older in Levi's family group. The total number was 22,000. 
This is the word of the Lord. Pat Saragian, can you hear me? You are an answer to prayer. We are so happy to see you here. We have been praying for you week by week. And may the Lord continue to strengthen you. And may we get to see you every week. Yeah. Thanks be to God. God does answer prayers. God does strengthen his people. Um, Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your willingness to travel with your people through the wilderness that you took them from slavery and you brought them to the promised land. Lord, I just pray that as we look into your word this day that you would speak a word to us uh, and that we would hear your voice. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God has rescued his people out of Egypt. God took them into the wilderness where he begins to shape them into something special. He gives them his law. He tells them how he wants to be worshipped. He sets aside the tribe of Levi to be the priests and the caretakers of the tabernacle. And at the center of the Israelite encampment, which would have been about a million people, was the tabernacle where God was worshipped. And in the center of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, or the Holy Box, they call it in this translation, the Holy Box, which contains the law of God, the Word of God. We are working our way through the book of Numbers, which we can think of as Exodus Part 2. This is the story of God's people now escaped from slavery, but not yet in the promised land. They're still on the pilgrimage, and God uses this time of pilgrimage to begin to shape them into the kind of people they need to be in order to occupy the promised land. Our lives are lived on the way. None of us have arrived. God is preparing us, and during this pilgrimage, God has promised to protect us. God has promised to provide for us. God has promised to instruct us, but he's also told us that we will be tested and we will be tried. Hard things will happen to us, and these hard things will reveal the condition of our hearts. What God wants from us is our heart And it's only the difficult circumstances that really show us who we are. It's easy to be all pleasant and sweet when everything is going our way, but when we don't get our way, we discover pretty quickly who we are. Aaron, the brother of Moses, is the head of the Israelite priests. Moses is the prophet. His brother is the priest. And Aaron has got four sons. Aaron and all of his sons and all of the tribe of Levi have been ordained by God to uh, the work of of the tabernacle. Verse 8 says, the Levites will serve the Israelites by caring for everything in the meeting tent. This will be their way of serving at the holy tent. Those who serve in the church serve God. But they serve God by serving God's people. Now that doesn't mean that they take their orders from God's people. The tabernacle is not a club taking care of its members or a business catering to its clients. 
The tabernacle is a holy institution. It is a divine institution. It belongs to God. And the way the Levites serve God's people is by obeying God's commands. In Leviticus, the book that comes right before Numbers, there are a whole bunch of instructions about how things are supposed to be done in the tabernacle. God says, you know, do it this way, but don't do it that way. But what if some of the people say, you know, I kind of like it that, that way and not this way? What are the Levites to do? Well, out of respect for God, the Levites have to do it God's way, but also out of love for those people because things will only go well for the Israelites if the Levites obey God. In verse 4, we have a little reminder of what can go wrong when the Levites, all of whom have been called to serve God, when the Levites, even if they are the sons of the big kahuna Aaron, when the Levites do not do things the way that God told them to do it. Nadab and Abihu were struck dead. Now that seems strange to us. Do you know what their offense was? They used the wrong kind of charcoal. God told them, I want this kind of charcoal. I don't want that kind of charcoal. They thought, well, you know, I kind of like this kind of charcoal. Maybe it costs a little less. Maybe I like the smell a little more. Maybe God won't notice. They cut a few corners. They used the charcoal. And God killed them. Verse 4 is a reminder that God in his instructions in Scripture are not to be tampered with. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have a description of the elements that are to be present in a worship service. Reformed theologians call this the regulative principle of Worship. The regulative principle says that we are to worship God the way God tells us to worship Him. Okay, We worship God according to Scripture. Some things are supposed to be in worship. Some things are not supposed to be in worship. Now those things that are not supposed to be in worship, that doesn't mean that they're bad things. But they just don't belong in worship. Let me give you three quick examples from this church, from my experience during my time as your pastor. Some years ago, I had an older couple uh, ask me if uh, we could do a blessing of the animals in worship. Some churches do this. They bring their pets to church, and the priest says a blessing over them. Now, this older couple had a fluffy little white dog. She was their fur baby. They loved that dog. They wanted to bring that dog to church and have the pastor bless the dog. Can a blessing of animals be part of biblical worship? Now let me tell you this. I have prayed for animals. I've prayed for some of your animals. I've prayed that they would get well when they're sick. I've prayed for them that they'd be healed. I have also gone to people's houses when they've just moved in and I've prayed over the house asking God's blessing on this house. When Dave Hamalian was getting ready to farm a piece of land up in Lehigh County, I went 
out there into that field with him, and we prayed over that field that God would bless this field, that God would bless the labors of Dave the farmer, that God would bless the people who would eat the fruit of this field. I do think that we should be willing to ask God's blessing on all parts of our lives, and that includes our animals and our houses and our occupations, yeah, even our cars and our washing machines. We can ask God's blessing on them. But can I do a blessing of the animal in a Sunday morning worship service? Well, I could find no example of this in Scripture. And so I said no. What I did instead was have an animal blessing booth at the fall festival. And people brought their pets. And we prayed over those pets out there on the north lawn. I felt like I could do that. Example number one. Example number two. I had a couple of people (laughs) ask me to be baptized a second time. Since the time of their baptism, God had done some big things in their lives and they wanted to bear public testimony to, you know, how wonderful God is and they wanted to get baptized again. Can I baptize a person a second time? Well, in the Bible, there are no examples of somebody being baptized a second time. And so I had to say, no. Instead, I invited them to share their testimony in the worship service. The Bible does tell us to do that. And I think that's, in fact, exactly what their heart wanted to do anyway. Third example. We had a music director here a number of years ago who played a special piece of music or maybe he sang a special song, I don't remember at this point. And after his piece was over, the congregation clapped, as we often do when we've been moved by a piece of music, and the director took a bow like he was on a music hall stage. not on the chancel in a worship service. I had to talk to him about that. The people who stand on this chancel are not performing for you. And so we do not applaud them. They're not working for your applause and your praise. They work for the King of Kings. They lead us to worship God. God is our audience this morning. If we clap our hands in worship, and yes, it is appropriate to clap your hands in worship, we are clapping them in thanksgiving to God. Any musician or any preacher who is hungry for the applause of the people, that person is not fit to serve in the house of God. Three quick examples of what we cannot admit in worship. So what does go in a worship service? Well, actually, it's pretty simple. There are uh, six categories that the Bible talks about. Number one, there's prayer. Above all else, 
This is a house of prayer. Number two, there is the reading and the proclamation or the preaching of the word. Again, uh, Jordan Goretti read uh, the second reading for me this morning. It was a big relief. I don't want to read all of those names. He does a beautiful job. There's the reading and the preaching of the word. The word of God is the center of the worship service. We read it every time we get together. We preach only one book. It's called the Bible, and we preach the whole book. There are some parts of this book that you don't like. This is not the church for you. I can give you some recommendations of other churches that will give you only part of the scriptures. We read the book and we read it every day. And we don't get up here and read poetry or read inspirational quotes off the internet. We read the Bible. And we then proclaim the word of God. The preacher who has the office of the prophet expounds that word, which is to explain it and to apply it into our lives. So that's number two. We read the word and we proclaim the word. Number three, we sing, which is kind of a funny thing. Like you think about how many places in your life do you go and just start singing? This might be the only place that you do it. I think it's a wonderful part. Uh, I I feel sorry for people who don't go to church. They're sad, sad people. We sing. It's not a worship service if we don't sing. And the Bible mentions three kinds of songs. They're called psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, we don't know exactly what those different kinds of songs were, but what is clear is that there was a variety of music that belonged in divine worship. Number four, there is testifying. Standing up and telling each other about what God has been doing in your life is part of worship. It always has been part of worship. It is mandated in Scripture. We probably need to do more of that here. Number five. We have sacraments. There are two sacraments that are commanded by Jesus. Baptism, which is a one-time sign and seal that shows that we've been included into the covenant family. And then the Lord's Supper, which is, uh, as often as we can do it, sign and seal that we're members of the covenant family. We're commanded in Scripture to make use of those holy signs and sacraments. And then number six, there is the blessing of the benediction. We're going to sing the benediction. We're singing the benediction, right? Is our closing song today? I think so. I think we're singing that this, this, uh, this afternoon. Um, this is a priestly function, the benediction. Actually, Bruno is going to give us the benediction uh, uh, this, uh, today. The command to give a blessing of benediction over the people in worship, that shows up in the book of Numbers. Okay, We, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So there are six elements that are required in biblical worship. We take our instruction from Scripture about what to include in this service. We look to Scripture to figure out also what should not be in worship. Now, I want to quickly address a question regarding contemporary church music which I've spoken about before, most recently in my Sunday school class on the history of our church. Two common complaints that you hear about contemporary church music are, number one, that contemporary church music is repetitious. 
And number two, that contemporary church music is all about us. You know, it's all about I and me and mine. Well, let me talk first about repetition. If you look in your hymnal, don't do it now, but take one home with you at the end of the service. You'll, one with a broken spine. We're going to get rid of those anyway. You'll notice that some of the hymns have just verses. And other hymns have verses and choruses. The chorus is the part that you sing again uh, at the end of each verse. And if you look at the date of the hymns, you will notice that the hymns with the choruses, hymns like, I come to the garden alone and tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, they are the newer hymns. And those hymns became popular, hymns with choruses became popular after the Civil War. Before the Civil War, and going back much farther, hymns without choruses appear. Hymns like, Be Thou My Vision, which might be from the 8th century. And A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, which takes us back to the 16th century. For whatever reason, I'm not really sure why, repetition became popular in church music in the 19th century. But the question we have to ask is, not is it popular, but is it okay? And that takes us back to the Bible. The hymn book in the Bible, of course, is the Psalms. We have 150 songs that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that were used in worship, that continue to be used in worship for, well, now for thousands of years. And in that divinely inspired gold standard of church music, we find songs like Psalm 136, we use part of that psalm as our call to worship this morning where the refrain, his love endures forever, is repeated 26 times. Now maybe I'm being pharisaical, maybe I'm being legalistic, but I'd rather be safe than sorry. So here's my rule. If your song has 27 repeats, we're not going to sing it. Okay? You hear me? John, where's John? John, Susan Clark, I don't know where you're hiding someplace in this sanctuary. I don't want to hear any song that repeats more than 26 times. We will follow the biblical standard. And then what about I, me, and mine? That language that you see in church music, uh, we're told. As a child, growing up in a Baptist church in southwest Missouri, my favorite hymn was, I Come to the Garden Alone. To me, that was the sweetest song ever written. When I was seven years old, an evangelist visited our church, and he played a violin, and he played that hymn, that old 19th century hymn, which is filled with I, me, my language I come to the garden alone not with the congregation and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own and the joy that we share as we tarry there none other only me has ever known 
That evangelist played that hymn so sweetly, that hymn that I already knew because we had been singing it uh, all the time that I was growing up in church, but he played it so sweetly that I went to my father that day and told him to buy me a violin. I wanted to learn to play it too. So is I come to the garden alone to be banned from Christian worship because it is so I, me, mine in its language? Well, again, the standard is not our taste. The standard is the Bible. And the Psalms are our hymn book. And if you do a search on the Psalms, you will discover that the words I and me appear in the Psalms more than 1,500 times, and the words us and we, interestingly, are actually very rare in the Psalms. Think of the 23rd Psalm. You can say it with me if you want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 17 times in one song David uses the first person pronoun I, me, mine. John, where's Susan? There she Susan, here's my instructions to you. Call me a legalist if you want. I do not want to hear any song that says I, me, or mine more than 17 times. Okay? 18 was too many, up to 17. All right? We're going to be safe. We're going to keep it within biblical limitations. For the past eight weeks, we've run this rather strange experiment of trying to have one English language worship service each week. We have the Portuguese service still in the evening. We haven't figured out how to get those together quite yet. That's more complicated. Having these unified services have brought our people together. I have had fun watching you get to know each other. I think everybody needs to know who Bert Holmes is, and they're, they're meeting him, right? Oh, that's Bert Holmes. I heard about Bert Holmes. That's Bert Holmes. It's a great thing to see week after week that we're part of something larger than we thought, that we're actually a multi-generational church, that we've got grandparents and parents and kids, grandkids all coming together to church on a Sunday morning. I love that, and it's been a great joy for us. But I also know that it's been hard for some of us. I know that it's been hard on the musical staff because they've worked harder than ever to try to figure out how to make all the parts fit together. That's very tricky. It's not easy. Uh, We have had a lot to learn. Uh, But for some of us in the pews, it's been difficult too because some of the music's not familiar, because the rhythm of the service is different. We're not sure exactly how to do it this way. And that's hard. 
I appreciate all of you who have hung in there and who have given this experiment a shot. I appreciate those of you who have shown up this morning. I hope that all of you have been blessed in worship these past two months. Next month, the session is going to make a decision about what to do with Sunday morning worship, whether to continue this way or, or to split the services again. The time and the place of the services is a decision that belongs to the session alone. The pastor can't choose this, and the congregation doesn't get to choose it. You're not making a vote today, by the way. You're being surveyed today. The decision is the session's. They have asked for your feedback, and so we're going to do that this morning here in about two seconds as a part of our worship. The session is going to read your comments carefully. Make sure that you put your name on the feedback form. It's in your bulletin. If you don't have one, they're back there. Any form that doesn't have a name on it will just be thrown away. We're, we, we won't read it. We don't react to anonymous feedback. Um, we're going to have the, the same form in the bulletin next week. For those who are not able to be here this week, there have been people, of course, who have been sending me emails and letters. People have been lobbying me as though I make this decision. Uh, we're collecting all of that, and we're going to give it over to the session, and they're going to pray over that. But let me just say this in closing. A week ago, so a week ago Saturday, did you see my grandbaby, by the way? <laughs> this is his second appearance here. Uh, that's Sebastian. Uh, a week ago Saturday, um, I had my first chance to, to babysit Sebastian. So he's what, he's seven weeks old, eight weeks old? Eight weeks old, okay. Uh, my daughter Rosie, she wanted to go to the gym and take a spin class, and her husband Josh had the COVID at that time, and so he was out of commission. And so Rosie asked, if I would watch the baby for an hour and a half. So you might ask me, how was that? How was that experience? In fact, you might ask me to fill out a survey about my experience with my grandson. What was it like? What were the pleasant parts? What were the unpleasant parts? Would you want to do it again? So let me tell you, on the pleasant side... I like holding babies. I think they're beautiful. I like the sounds they make. I like babies the way I like dogs. You know, you pet them and they're cute. And the dog is happy because you're petting it. And you're just happy because the dog is happy. I don't know why we're wired this way, but we're wired this way. So those are some of the nice things about babysitting Sebastian last week. He was cute and he was taking some pleasure uh, from just being held. You know, he likes being well fed. He's very particular about his diaper, okay? But when the diaper is, is nice and dry, he's happy. Uh, and, and that's nice. Does that mean it was all upside? In the 90 minutes I had him, he cried about 30 minutes. We, we have yet to figure each other out, okay, we're, over time. I had to change his diaper, and he wasn't happy with the bottle I gave him. It was the wrong temperature. 
And when you're watching a baby, you don't really get to do the things that you want to do. So my life was on hold for an hour and a half, and I'm just sort of walking around my little house with this little baby. Those are the downsides of babysitting. Every experience in life has upsides and downsides. And that's what we're asking you about with regard to the worship services. What were the upsides? What were the things that you liked? What were the downsides? What were the things that you didn't like in the survey? Tell the session about the nice things that you experienced in the unified service. And also tell them honestly about the less than nice things in the unified service. There'll be some of those too. So after having given the session some ideas about the things you enjoyed and about the things you didn't enjoy, then tell the session whether or not you want to continue the experiment. If the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, you might say, yeah, let's, let's keep doing it. If the bad stuff outweighs the good stuff, you might like, nah, let's go back to the way it was before. But in all things, may Christ be glorified. Pull out your bulletins now. It's not going to take forever. <laughs> Fill this in. And then I'm actually going to um, ask for some ushers to help us to, to collect these things. I think there are another couple collection plates back there, and we can, you know, in a few minutes, uh, gather those up, and then we'll hand them off. Um, while we're filling that out, I think the, the musicians will play for us. Nope. Here. <laughs> okay. Only 12 refrains. <laughs>